Okay. Oh, yeah. got to wait for that. Now that the recordings began, I shall begin. Um, well, I'm going to start off with the um, obvious, and um, I'm going to be conscious of the time, so I'll uh, I might uh, truncate uh, things, but I'll sort of aim for about an hour. Um, okay, so nine eleven. Um, in terms of discussing 9-11, um, instead of actually talking, you know, about uh, September 20 years ago, I think it's a good idea. Indeed, I think it's, it's necessary uh, to go back to the beginning, at least of Al-Qaeda, and uh, make the point uh, that this organisation began as part of the Saudi, Pakistani, but crucially American-backed uh, uh, counter-revolutionary effort against the um, PDPA government in Kabul, and certainly um, after the um, Soviet intervention in December uh, 1979, a sort of concerted effort by the United States to get revenge for Vietnam and to inflict a body blow um, on the Soviet Union. So uh, if we look at the specific origins of Al-Qaeda, uh, this was a group of foreign fighters, uh, commonly called the Arab Afghanistani or the Afghanistani Arabs, uh, take it as you will, uh, they weren't all Arabs, but they were mainly Arabs, and they were recruited um, in order to um, basically provide a, an international brigade uh, to the uh, Mujahideen uh, forces uh, that the United States financed to the tune of something like $600 million. Uh, 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 that's how much uh, money uh, the United States directed in. Um, has to be said uh, that um, Al-Qaeda, um, you know, um, didn't play uh, a significant role um, um, in the fighting. And I think as a, a body never amounted to more than three, four 5,000 people, but something like an estimated 35,000 people went through its ranks. And of course, the name um, isn't of any holy or party uh, significance, as I understand it. It, it basically means um, in um, Arabic, something along the lines of base. Um, so this, you know, was viewed as, um, how should we put it? not um, uh, the beginning of um, a wider project uh, to begin with, it evolved um, into um, a wider uh, project. Um, so who was Bin Laden? We all know um, he came from a wealthy, a very wealthy Saudi family, not at the top of society, but nonetheless near uh, the top. So, the, you know, the family uh, were of billionaire uh, status. Now, as I understand it, just a, 
a throwaway uh, fact. Et, um, his mother uh, was actually an Alawe. Um, if I get, get the sect right, uh, this is sort of not quite Shia, but uh, it, it's viewed as that in Saudi Arabia. Uh, that might explain something about bin Laden's psychology. Um, it might, might explain something about the 10 wives uh, that he chose to marry uh, and the fact that all of them, um, I, I don't know the technical term uh, for it, but all purportedly uh, can trace their heritage all the way back uh, to the prophet uh, himself. So he married into the most religiously, um, how should you put it, um, prestigious um, lines. Now, in terms of his early years, um, it has to be said, I don't think any of us um, are unaware of the photographs of uh, bin Laden, a young bin Laden in London or New York. You know, he lived the life of a playboy. There's pictures of him in his loon pants next to some, you know, mega American um, car. Um, has to be said, this is in the 1970s, but having lived uh, the life of a, a, a playboy, um, he uh, was one of those um, that volunteered to go to Afghanistan to fight the evil uh, Soviet empire. And clearly he went uh, to Afghanistan as a religious, fanatic. Um, so his, his, his religious ideas were very much um, orthodox um, in terms of Saudi Arabia, a strict interpretation, a literal interpretation um, of the Quran and a strict lifestyle. Um, 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 uh, uh, yeah, anyway, th there you are. Okay, so what I want to do now really is uh, ask um, how he how he changed not only uh, from being a playboy into a mujahideen and uh, a um, a fighter against the evil uh, Soviet empire. How comes this organization uh, ends up launching uh, the um, attacks uh, on New York and Washington uh, twenty uh, years ago? Um, and as I understand it, um, perhaps uh, the first turning point uh, that we have is the American uh, counter invasion um, of Kuwait. Remember, um, who knows why? Was it America giving him the, um, the nudge? Or did he do it simply of his own volition? I don't know, but Saddam Hussein uh, goes in uh, to Kuwait, takes it over uh, very easily. And under those circumstances, um, bin Laden uh, contacts uh, the um, Saudi royal family and basically offers his services and the services of the foreign fighters in Afghanistan. And uh, much to his shock and uh, horror, he's turned down. And the Saudi royal family, rather than um, turning to the sort of ragtag and bobtail uh, armed force of um, Al-Qaeda, the base, bin Laden, um, instead choose <laughs> militarily uh, the slightly more sensible uh, option 
uh, of going for American uh, protection. So not only did America go into Kuwait, uh, as you might recall, it also uh, put in place, you know, missile protection, but also troops uh, guarding Saudi Arabia's oil uh, facilities, because I don't know, I can't remember at the time, was there all sorts of stories going around that, uh, you know, first stop Kuwait, and then next stop, it will be uh, Saddam Hussein going into Saudi Arabia. After all, that isn't completely uh, barking, because uh, Saddam Hussein was head of uh, the Iraqi uh, branch of the Ba'ath Party, which is an explicitly pan-Arabic uh, uh, party. You know, it, the idea is to unite uh, all uh, of Arabia uh, under the Ba'ath Party. It also uh, called itself uh, a socialist party. Um, e either way, uh, it was uh, America not only dealt with Saddam Hussein um, in uh, Kuwait, it also um, propped up, openly propped up uh, the Saudi regime in Saudi Arabia itself. Now, for someone um, from bin Laden's background to have infidel troops in the Holy Land, you know, the site of the two main um, sites of um, Islam, i.e. Mecca and Medina, uh, was um, sacrilegious. I'm not sure whether I'm using uh, the right words, but you, you understand uh, what I'm um, uh, saying. Um, so that really, uh, to use a Anglo-Saxon phrase, pissed uh, bin Laden off. And we then find him um, being basically exiled into Sudan. And um, we then have the second turning point as far as his uh, change of um, worldview uh, goes, uh, and that is the acceptance by Saudi Arabia of the Oslo Accord. Remember, this is the accord um, signed by the PLO um, on the one side and the Israeli state on the other uh, to go for basically some sort of, um, what should we call it? Uh, you couldn't call it a two-state solution. <laughs> Uh, a one Israel, uh, and then basically a ghetto, um, you know, um, on the West Bank uh, for the Palestinians, and of course, a giant open prison um, in, in Gaza. That's what the Palestinians got. And again, the very fact that Saudi Arabia accepted uh, that, signed up uh, to that deal, was considered by Orthodox uh, Muslims as sacrilegious. Why? because it legitimized Israel and it legitimized Israel's occupation of Jerusalem, which of course contains the third um, holy site, key holy site of um, the uh, Muslim faith. Um, as I understand it um, from the Quran, um, Muhammad is meant to have transported himself or been transported uh, to um, Jerusalem. Um, um, either way, uh, certainly when um, the armed forces of his, his immediate successors went into Jerusalem, what they were expecting 
uh, was to be greeted as uh, liberators, uh, and indeed they expected uh, the Jews uh, to convert uh, to Islam. That didn't happen. Uh, they might have been greeted as something uh, of liberators. They were being liberated from the Byzantine uh, Empire, and for many people, um, anything was better than that. Either way, this is the third site, uh, holy site of um, uh, Islam. So from bin Laden's point of view, uh, this was uh, the Saudi royal family selling out, um, um, you know, big time. And what we then see is uh, Al-Qaeda as organized in Sudan, basically organizing attacks in Africa on American um, um, embassies. And um, we saw an attack in Kenya uh, and in Dar es Salaam. And I think within that, something like 200 people, overwhelmingly uh, Africans, of course, uh, died uh, in that attack. Now, as I understand it, under those circumstances, his family uh, cut him off from his uh, annual allowance. His annual allowance at the time was a, a cool $7 million. Uh, dollars. And also what happens is that the Sudanese government basically offers, and this is disputed, so I'm not saying this is gospel, but uh, there are certainly stories that the Sudanese government offered uh, to arrest bin Laden and hand him over uh, to the Americans. We didn't hear um, um, anything uh, from the Americans, you know, um, reciprocating or, or welcoming um, um, such a move. And under those circumstances, anyway, uh, what we get is bin Laden going back from Sudan uh, back uh, to um, Afghanistan, of where he's tolerated. Um, clearly, the Taliban aren't the same as the Mujahideen, but he's viewed as part of the same sort of thought universe um, he, here he is, he's a, a fellow fighter against uh, the evil uh, Soviet um, uh, empire. Um, he's someone uh, that you have a duty towards, and, and that's how he seems to have been uh, treated. Now, again, um, we have to try to um, think uh, bin Laden-like. We have to think um, Al-Qaeda-like now. Now the main target isn't uh, the Soviet Union, uh, that's gone. Now the main target is uh, America uh, and uh, its international um, control. Okay, so what's the strategy of Al-Qaeda? You know, why the bombing of these um, American embassies? You know, why, uh, why the launch of these um, spectacular suicide attacks 20 years ago in New York um, and uh, Washington. Well, the strategy seems to be uh, that what we do is we provoke uh, America uh, to attack a Muslim country. And we provoke it to not only attack a Muslim country, but to get bogged down uh, in a fight uh, in a Muslim country. And what the role of Al-Qaeda is, is to use that as an opportunity to rise uh, up in resistance and to generalize uh, that uh, uprising um, of resistance. Now, whether it's a five-point plan or a 
seven point plan, that's a mute point, depending on which journalist is interviewing uh, bin Laden. Um, suffice to say uh, that the end point is um, a universal uh, caliphate, a, a global caliphate. Um, and <laughs> interestingly, uh, one date that was given, presumably again in an interview, for the caliphate to be completed uh, was uh, uh, the year 2020. Um, obviously, that isn't uh, now repeated, but you know it sort of reminds me of uh, Khrushchev's plan for the realization of uh, one catching up and then overtaking the United States, but also uh, realizing um, uh, communism. From my memory um, of the the uh, was it 1960-61 program of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Uh, it was 1970 uh, that uh, the Soviet Union catches up with the United States, and it was 1980 uh, when it starts to realize uh, communism. Uh, either way, um, you know, having seen the Soviet Union collapse, uh, what you have is a sort of a projection of what happened to the Soviet Union onto the United States. And if we look at the Al-Qaeda plan, well, it isn't totally mad, is it? Because actually what we saw is certainly the success uh, of its early stages. There you are, uh, they attack uh, Washington, they attack uh, uh, New York. Um, within, within a month, isn't it? Was it two months? Yes, November. Uh, two months, we have the invasion by the United States and its NATO allies. The United States turns around to NATO, an injury to one and all the rest of it is an injury to all. It calls upon its NATO allies to join it in punishing uh, the criminals. It goes in uh, to uh, Afghanistan. It aligns itself with the Northern Alliance, with the warlords, with the feudal forces in uh, Afghanistan. Uh, and of course, it clears out incredibly quickly uh, the Taliban uh, government. But look at things now. 20 years later, look at Kabul uh, and you've got a Taliban uh, government back. Uh, and uh, of course, the United States was successfully bogged down in, in a war uh, in Afghanistan that ultimately it lost. But of course, what we're dealing with here, and this is the point I want to come to, is that the United States and Al-Qaeda sort of formed, although very unequal in terms of their power, formed a sort of mirror image uh, of each other. Uh, Al-Qaeda wanted to provoke the United States, but it has to be said that George W. Bush and the neocons, the neocons organized in the project for a new American century, wanted uh, to be provoked. Uh, and if you read their literature, which I did at the time, it's, it's, it's very interesting because what you have is the United States basically saying, look, we've seen off uh, the Soviet Union, the evil empire uh, has collapsed. There's only one superpower now on the planet and sort of we can do as we please. And one of the uh, um, um, aims of the project of the new American century, of course, is not only to prop up American power and to project it into the 21st century. As part of that, what they propose to do is to refashion the Middle East 
in an American image. And so you get these um, writers uh, in PNAC, and some of them come from a sort of quasi Marxist background. Some of them come from a Shackmanite tradition. So they have that sort of grasp of world history, the sort of uh, grandeur of historical movement. And they basically say, well, what we can do is refashion uh, the Middle East in the image of the United States. And one presumes what they mean by that is some sort of um, bourgeois uh, democracy. But as long as people vote, of course, uh, in in the right way. And of course, the aim was never uh, to start off in Afghanistan. I mean, I'm not being rude about Afghanistan, but they didn't give a F about Afghanistan. Afghanistan was their first test uh, of their new military doctrine uh, that you could go in very, very lightly. And because of technology, you could have an enormous um, um, impact. And that was proven, at least in the initial stages. There you are, you know, you bomb um, um, with um, conventional aircraft, but you also bomb uh, with drones. But the, the big aim that they had, of course, was um, Iraq. And I'm not going to go in how on earth you make the transition uh, from uh, revenging yourself on Al-Qaeda and uh, bin Laden uh, to attacking the secular <laughs> uh, Saddam Hussein, the head of the Iraqi Ba'ath Party, but they managed it. And we, well, if we're old enough, we all remember uh, the 45 minutes, the weapons of mass destruction, um, you know, <laughs> and somehow uh, George Bush managing uh, to incorporate Iraq as part of his access of evil, as if somehow Saddam Hussein was in any way responsible uh, for 9-11, but they, they managed it. They managed to, to fool enough of people enough of the time. We know that Tony Blair went along with it. Uh, we know that the, you know, the, the, the ruling class was split over the question. So you had, uh, I can't remember who the leader of the Liberal Party in Britain was at the time, or Liberal Democrats. Either way, he spoke in Hyde Park on one of those huge Stop the War Coalition uh, platforms. You know, we had voices in MI6 voicing their very strong doubts, former top generals, um, you know, the same, of course, um, in the uh, United States, but they, they can still get away with it. They go in uh, to Iraq. And of course, what's the result of that? Of course, we have an incredibly quick American victory. There they are uh, in Baghdad within X hours or days or whatever the hell it happens to be. I know it was incredibly, incredibly quick. But what, 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 what results? Of course, we see precisely the bin Laden strategy of uh, al-Qaeda um, using this to, um, um, how should put it, um, uh, encourage um, an opposition. And it's al-Qaeda which then morphs uh, into ISIS, uh, which then conquers, I mean, amazingly, huge tracts of uh, Iraq uh, and uh, um, of Syria, um, you know, a vindication, if he was still alive, uh, of uh, bin Laden's early stages in terms of um, his strategy. Um, and certainly in terms of the neocons, uh, what we have is their strategy 
uh, turning to dust, that they get bogged down in what uh, uh, Biden has called, um, you know, these endless uh, wars. We see the United States scuttling um, from Iraq. We see the United States scuttling um, from uh, Afghanistan and turning really uh, after that uh, to basically a policy of failed states. And of course, that goes back uh, to Carter. You could say that goes back um, you know, to um, American policy in Nicaragua, uh, Mozambique, Angola, uh, when clearly they weren't talking about providing an alternative uh, government that the forces they were backing simply uh, left and encourage uh, the wrecking um, um, of uh, countries. And that's what uh, uh, we saw, of course, in uh, Syria uh, and what, in effect, uh, uh, France and Britain, uh, that's all they were able to achieve um, in, in Libya. There are plenty of other um, examples. OK. Um, OK, so just you know, reading and watching the coverage of 9-11. Uh, uh, I'm not going to really deal with the political speeches, Boris Johnson, uh, Blair saying it was all vindication as far as he's concerned because of uh, the evils of um, Islamic uh, fundamentalism. What moved me was just uh, revisiting um, the memories of uh, people who survived 9-11 um, the memories of uh, people's relatives, you know, losing people, phone conversations and all the rest of it. And one cannot but be moved. But then I'm reminded that, you know, yes, you know, 9-11 was a terrible, terrible blow in particular uh, to the people uh, of uh, New York. And something like in total, uh, um, in terms of those attacks, something like 3,000 people died, not quite 3,000, but something near that huge, huge loss uh, of, um, of, of life. And yet, if we look back at what the United States has inflicted on the people of Afghanistan, going back, uh, um, you know, to the origins of its uh, pushback against the evil Soviet uh, empire, you know, for every you know, one American that died 20 years ago. I mean, you must be surely talking about 100, 200, 300. I don't know. Um, and I don't know whether anyone does know the exact statistic, but huge numbers of Afghanistanis died. Leave aside uh, the horror inflicted um, on Iraq, Syria, um, Lebanon, um, Libya, Somalia, etc., 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 and and why don't their stories get told? You know, so we have you know the the trooping of the colour, uh, you know, with the, and the American anthem and the 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 Queen of England sending messages uh, to Joe Biden. But isn't one human life the same as another human life? Aren't we all uh, of value, or some are more valuable than others? And I, I think we live in a world. Uh, where some lives are more valuable than others. Some lives are, the, are human lives that deserve a story, that their names are read out uh, one after the other, and then their statistics. And 
Afghanistani lives are a statistic. Iraqi lives are a statistic. That's how the Western press, that's how the Western media, that's how Western politicians think. Uh, and it's true uh, that if you take the United States, of course, it's officially uh, anti-racist. If we take the UK state, it's officially uh, anti-racist. But just in that, you see the complete disjuncture uh, in terms of their worldview uh, when it comes to the value of a human life, that a human life in America, that's worth something. A human life in Britain, that's worth something. But a human life out there in the Middle East, that's nothing uh, but a statistic. That's collateral uh, damage uh, as far as the US uh, is uh, concerned. Okay, just uh, uh, um, drawing that, that section to a close, and that's half an hour's uh, uh, worth. Um, what we have uh, under the pressure of um, survivors and the, and the, the relatives uh, of survivors is uh, Joe Biden giving the order for the FBI uh, to release the findings of its investigation into the possible links uh, between Saudi Arabia um, and the suicide bombers on the um, 11th um, of um, September. I haven't read uh, the reports and in terms of the headlines that I've seen, I've seen no links proven. On the other hand, I've also seen, um, well, so, so an official, an anonymous official in the Saudi Arabian embassy in Washington had contacts with two of the leading um, suicide uh, bombers um, in LA. Uh, as I said, I, I don't know um, what, what um, the actual content of this, but let me make the point uh, that Joe Biden decided to do that because he didn't want an embarrassment on his hand, um, you know, in terms of the ceremonials, because that's what uh, the relatives had said, that Joe Biden wouldn't be welcome uh, to their um, you know, marking uh, of um, um, you know, September the 11th, 2001, unless he released uh, these FBI files. Now, what Joe Biden said is, I'll release them, but also here's the small print. He's going to release them in batches and he's going to release them redacted. Um, and nothing's going to jeopardize US um, um, state um, interest. Now, okay. What we do know, though, and this is beyond dispute, um, is if you take people at the top of Saudi society, they'd ba they backed Al-Qaeda in the same way that they backed uh, ISIS. Uh, this isn't necessarily the crown prince. It's not necessarily the king. Uh, almost certainly they, they didn't. But people next to them, people related to them, people uh, who are around them did. And if you take that sort of society, quite frankly, it, if that happens, their business is your business. You know what they've been doing. Um, you know, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with family business. Um, you cannot imagine the situation uh, that uh, if the king hears a rumor about some relative of his giving money to al-Qaeda, he wouldn't ask them, <laughs> wouldn't demand the truth 
Uh, this is just inconceivable. Or maybe he chooses not to ask because he doesn't want the truth. Either way, we know uh, that Saudi money did find its way into Al-Qaeda, not only, of course, which is obvious, um, when it was in Afghanistan fighting the evil Soviet empire, but it also found its way into uh, Afghanistan after that and after um, Al-Qaeda and uh, bin Laden go back uh, to Afghanistan um, under the Taliban. Um, that is beyond uh, a dispute. And we also know uh, that it wasn't only Saudi money, it's Gulf state money. Um, you know, Qatar has been mentioned, but also Kuwait, not the state, uh, but people close uh, to the top. After all, we're talking about people who view millions of dollars as loose change. Um, you know, that I this is the billionaire uh, class uh, in those uh, uh, countries. Just a last point on, on that. Uh, I'm told uh, that in Iran, the regime changes from above have been remarkably quiet uh, in recent months. No surprise. Why? Uh, because the debacle uh, that the United States has suffered uh, um, in Afghanistan is living proof of what happens with American imposed regime change. At the very least, what you get is immeasurable human suffrage. What you get is the complete disruption uh, of uh, society. But also what you get, ironically, uh, is 20 years later, the return uh, of the Taliban. And what about Iraq? Uh, well, OK, Saddam Hussein has gone, uh, the Ba'ath Party has gone. But instead of that, what you get is politicians um, running Iraq, at least in terms of the non-Kurdish areas, <laughs> who are sheer, sheer uh, allies um, of uh, um, the government, the, the theocratic government uh, of Iran. What a paradox uh, that is. So precisely, you can understand why the royalists, why the MEK, um, 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 you know, weirdos uh, are quiet uh, when it comes to encouraging American imposed um, regime change um, in Iran. Look next door, both to the east and the west. That is what happens uh, if America uh, comes in um, and changes uh, the regime. OK, moving now to a very different set of politics and a very different part of the world. Yesterday, there was the announcement of the death at the age of 86 of Abinad Guzan, Chairman Gonzalo. Yeah, I think that's pronounced it right. Um, anyway, you know what I'm talking about, Shining Path um, and the struggle uh, that that organization uh, conducted uh, to overthrow uh, the Peruvian uh, state. Um, I have an enduring memory uh, in my mind. It's sort of sketched there or sort of sealed um, or seared onto my uh, brain. I can't remember what, you know, the name of the Pope was, what his number was, but I can certainly remember some bloody Pope flying into um, Lima on a papal 
visit coming down into Lima Airport. And, and Lima is very similar in terms of um, photographs. Uh, I've never been, been there, but it's very similar uh, to Kabul um, or Tehran. And there's this big city and towering in the distance, uh, these very steep uh, mountains. And as the Pope comes down and uh, disembarks, you know, from his uh, papal plane and is just about to get into his Pope uh, mobile, um, the uh, shining path uh, light up um, the mountains uh, over uh, Lima with a giant, and I'm talking about a giant uh, hammer and um, a sickle. So there's the Pope coming down um, and uh, Lima is uh, you know, <laughs> on your horizon, this huge hammer and sickle, you know, uh, uh, a fantastic propaganda uh, coup. On the other hand, what was um, Shining Path? Well, we need to understand a little bit about left-wing history, and we need to understand in terms of breakaways uh, from the official communist movement, uh, two particular schools of thought or two particular branches, and they're not the same. The first one occurs at the time of uh, the Sino-Soviet split, also at the time of uh, the Soviet Union backing India, um, in spite of India having a border war uh, with China. So that you have on the one side, socialist China, and then you have capitalist, although um, it was non-aligned and socialist orientated under the Congress party, uh, and the Soviet Union backs uh, uh, India. And in India itself, we have a big split uh, in the Communist Party, which is a big, powerful party, much less uh, so nowadays. But it was the second largest party in India uh, after independence. So you had the Congress Party, and then the next biggest party um, in the Indian Parliament was the Communist Party of India. That party split in the early 60s, and the majority of that party formed the Communist Party of India Marxist. And in Britain, you saw mini ver a mini version of that uh, under a guy called Reg Birch, um, who was the, I think, an assistant general secretary of the Engineers Union, the AEU. And he formed the Communist Party of Britain Marxist-Leninist. It still exists. It's a sort of tiny, I don't know how many, uh, individuals it, it's got, it publishes or maybe still publishes, I'm not quite sure, I haven't seen it uh, for a good decade or more, um, a journal called The Worker. Um, it's a nationalist uh, paper, sort of very strange. Either way, uh, we need to distinguish between what I'll call for the moment Marxist-Leninist parties, usually have Communist Party, blah, 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 brackets, Marxist-Leninist, which was formed in the early 60s, which to all intents and purposes are orthodox Stalinist uh, parties that aren't particularly uh, ne or necessarily pro-China. And then you get later under the conditions of the Cultural Revolution, roughly 1966 and onwards, those that seek to emulate uh, the Cultural uh, Revolution. Um, and 
when I first heard a party that was called something Communist Party of brackets Maoist, uh, I just thought that whoever told me or whatever I'd read is simply wrong. Uh, I, I thought that this must be uh, someone not understand because, you know, most titles in politics are given by your opponents and most isms or ists uh, aren't self-designated. So Marx uh, didn't call himself a Marxist. Um, Marx's followers didn't really call themselves Marxists. It was the opponents that did that you then um, you then adopt it as a badge of honor after the event. So the first people to use the word Marxist were opponents of Marxism. The first people to use the word Leninist were opponents of Lenin. Um, same with uh, Maoism or a Maoist. Anyway, in Peru, what we get is the formation of a Maoist party, the Communist Party of Peru, bracket shining path after the name of their publication. Um, and this party is committed to a people's war strategy, uh, which is uh, basically what we can do is emulate the success of Mao uh, after the defeat of the working class in Shanghai in 27, going into the countryside, establishing a red base area, and then from that base area, uh, coming back, surrounding the cities, and lo and behold, uh, you've got socialism. And uh, under uh, Mao's cultural revolution, this wasn't going to be a socialism along the lines of the Soviet Union, even Stalin, uh, this was going to be something far superior. Anyway, in uh, Peru, they called uh, the chairman uh, the fourth, fourth sword of Marxism. Marx, Lenin, Mao, and then uh, the great comrade um, himself. Now, I think that this is the result of a radical misreading, of course, of Chinese history. You know, to understand Mao's victory, you need to understand the defeat of the Japanese Empire, uh, not only by the Americans in the Pacific War, but also in late. Uh, the, the, you know, the late part of uh, World War II, the Soviet Union declares war on Japan and goes in uh, to Manchuria and huge amounts of arms are handed over uh, to the People's Liberation Army. And um, that is the key to success um, in China. Now, I don't know whether Mao would have won without that, um, but you cannot leave that out. Either way, uh, what we had in China was a successful um, um, fusion um, of um, uh, the peasant movement um, and the Communist Party of China. The Chinese Communist Party, which began, of course, as an urban party, was able to uh, organize uh, the peasants un underneath it, underneath its regime and was also able to organize a peasant army uh, under the political leadership um, of the Communist Party um, uh, of uh, China. And this became something of a, uh, a strategy uh, that was adopted in a number of um, um, other countries. And of course, from our point of view, the flaw of it uh, is um, pretty obvious. 
that if you have our uh, understanding of socialism being democratic, being an act of self-liberation um, by the working class for uh, the working class, the idea of organizing your party along military lines is um, antithetical uh, uh, to that. Um, the idea of uh, the countryside surrounding uh, the towns and bringing liberation ain't exactly um, working class self-liberation. So what you end up getting uh, through this people's war uh, is not uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat. You get something else. And what you get is something that's very complex that needs to be understood in terms of the global transition from capitalism uh, to communism that isn't socialism, but is something else. Um, something that maybe is viable, uh, maybe isn't uh, viable. Um, certainly something, uh, though, that I don't think has any internal dynamic to it uh, that points in the direction um, of communism, which can only, in my view, uh, come uh, from the working class, which is the universal uh, uh, class. Right, quarter an hour. Okay, so what happened in uh, Peru? Something like 70,000 people died. Half of them are meant to be uh, due to the action of Shining Path. Now, in terms of their strategy, yes, it, it began in the countryside. And what we had is the Peruvian state, the Peruvian counterinsurgency forces, at least seemingly following the advice of, uh, can I get his name? Richard, that's our, Richard Clutterbuck. Um, a lot of comrades from the 70s would uh, recall that name. He wrote a book, a manual, called Low Intensity Operations. And it, the reason why it's famous is because this was meant to be used in British conditions against the British people. This is the lessons that the British army learnt in operations such as Malaysia, uh, turning on the British people itself. So the, the military wouldn't use its full might, uh, but would use low intensity operations against an insurgency in Britain. That's what some of them were expecting. That's what some of them were planning for. Either way, the the miracle idea that they're meant to have come up with, that they learned from the Malay War, uh, was um, protected villages. This is something the Americans tried in Vietnam, uh, but seems to have worked uh, in Malaysia for particular reasons, which I'm not going to go into, but didn't, uh, but did work also uh, in Peru. And, and many of those deaths were actually interpeasant. Um, violence. Uh, so pro um, shining path peasants versus anti shining path uh, peasants. And of course, the anti shining path peasants were organized and paid for and armed uh, by uh, the state. Um, what happened in the end is that uh, the chairman was captured. He was captured in a sting operation in Lima um, over uh, a ballet school. Um, he was uh, arrested, put on trial, secret trial, wasn't allowed to address a jury, uh, wasn't allowed to address the foreign press. 
Since then, he's been kept in solitary confinement until his death. And I know he would have had doctors. He had an annual visit from his wife and a weekly visit uh, from his uh, lawyer. But what I think giving the game away uh, about what the Peruvian state was actually up against, what he had on his uh, computer was a list of all um, the members of uh, Shining Path, how they were organized and um, how they were armed. Um, and I just want to end with this, uh, that the tally was that they had 23,430 members. Uh, we need to understand that this would have been a highly dedicated uh, membership, a membership that was willing to die uh, for the cause. But they were armed with 335 revolvers, 500 rifles, and 300 pieces of miscellaneous military hardware, such as grenades. That's what um, the Peruvian state was up uh, against. Okay, so just finishing on that, of course, the danger um, with such a victory is as I've indicated, you end up not with uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat, you don't end up with democratic centralism in the party, you end up with military uh, uh, centralism. Of course, something that was forced on uh, the Soviet regime um, by the civil war, which it did theorize, um, sadly, as some sort of universal model of how parties uh, how communist parties uh, should be um, organized. I think that that wasn't a mistake in terms of the conditions uh, in the Soviet Union or Russia uh, at the time. It was a mistake uh, to generalize it. I understand why the mistake was made because they thought they stood on the cusp of the world revolution, thought that the German revolution was just about to happen. If the German revolution happened, there would have been a revolution in Italy, there would have been a revolution in Austria, Hungary, France, even Britain, yes, etc, uh, etc. Et but that didn't happen. And communist parties didn't adjust accordingly. And they didn't adopt a regime of democratic uh, centralism, by which we mean uh, not only the election of officials, uh, but the right uh, of members, individual members, groups of members to openly criticize uh, and openly publish their differences with the leadership, not just at the time of Congress, uh, not just in terms of some pre-conference uh, period, but that is a permanent and natural part of party life. And without that, what you end up with is either a sect or something approaching a military uh, formation. Okay, I now have, according to my own strictures, something under 10 minutes and I'm going to keep to that. So I'm going to leave an awful lot behind. So I'm going to leave out. What are these crazy anti-vaxxers? What the hell are they doing? Attacking uh, the headquarters of the BBC that it hasn't been in for decades. What are they doing outside Google? What are they doing outside ITN? What are they hell doing politicizing? What is a medical question? And the anyway, I'm not going to deal with that. Not going to deal with um, um, 
or whatever, anywhere, anything else. I'm just going to uh, touch upon uh, the Labour Party. I'm not going to um, reply to Tony Greenstein, unfortunately. I've not got the time. That will have to be another time. Simply point out uh, two opinion polls published uh, this week. One was in the Times, and um, this showed an 8% drop in Tory popularity. Um, and so it has the Tories on 37%. Um, you all needed to add uh, eight to that to work out what they were previously on. And the Labour Party still behind on 33%. On the other hand, we have a more recent poll published, and this is by YouGov, and that has the Tories on 33%, so 2%, no, not 2%, excuse me, um, that's 5% down on the Times poll, which has the Tories down 8% on their previous poll. So considerable drop in, the Tor in Tory support and the Labour Party on 35%. So this is the first time that we've seen uh, the Labour Party have a poll lead over the Tories for months and months and months. I think the figure that I read somewhere rather is something like eight months. So in terms of uh, COVID, um, you know, Boris Johnson's had a good COVID and he certainly had, and this is the crucial question, a good vaccination. AstraZeneca uh, uh, saved Boris Johnson uh, from a poll, um, a pollster's uh, drubbing. And what the conclusion I come to from that is not uh, the under Keir Starmer, the Labour Party's back and it's now a straight march to the next general election and a Labour victory. No, I'm not suggesting that for a second. I am not suggesting uh, that uh, um, uh, Keir Starmer has cracked it. And uh, now the um, former Red Wall uh, constituents, up, constituencies up north and in the Midlands are just about to return to Labour. There's nothing indicating anything of that, although the pollsters will tell you that if, 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 if this result was re reproduced in a general election, that that's what would happen. Well, we're not on the edge of a general election. So th this is silly talk. What is noticeable about those results is more the loss of Tory support than the gaining of Labour support. That's the first thing to note. So the Tories have gone down. Labour really hasn't gone up. It might have nudged up a bit, but nothing more uh, than that. But yes, I, 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 I sort of you know, want to talk about those figures because I think it's foolish to write off the Labour Party because it's quite conceivable uh, that we could have uh, COVID back in the winter. It's quite conceivable uh, that that could coincide with a, uh, a flu pandemic and that we have the NHS, even with money being channeled into it, you know, turning away patients, patients dying on stretchers, dying uh, in ambulances, hospitals saying that um, they, they cannot admit any more uh, people. It's conceivable uh, that um, Brexit goes wrong big time in Northern Ireland. It's conceivable that Brexit not only results in temporary shortages in British supermarkets, but some sort of more severe uh, problem. And yes, then um, it's conceivable uh, that the Labour Party uh, could form a majority or maybe even a minority. 
uh, government come the next general election. But I'm simply making the point uh, that the Labour Party isn't going to be just easily uh, disposed of. It, it's not uh, uh, finished. And indeed, it's just worth noting that the Guardian, I don't know whether they were being cruel or not, but uh, as these polls were being announced, certainly the YouGov poll was being announced, the Guardian ran with a John McDonnell, God help us, article um, telling Keir Starmer that he has, he just doesn't know how to land one um, on uh, Boris Johnson. That don't you know Boris Johnson's, you know, big fault, I can tell you, is integrity. And if only you followed my advice, everything would be different. Well, come off it, John. You know, you had a chance, um, you know, what was it from 2016, wasn't it? I do remember someone called Jeremy Corbyn. I do remember someone called John McDonnell being shadow chancellor. I do remember two general elections. I remember the last general election uh, with uh, the Labour Party manifesto with your fingerprints all over it. And I saw the Labour Party um, take a, a beating. Now we can then compare that to the Labour Party under Blair, Brown, Miliband and all the rest of it. Nonetheless, we had an 80 majority uh, by the Tories. And of course, then we had Brexit and then we had COVID and the COVID, COVID vaccine uh, bounce. Um, but we also had, again, just reading the, the left press this week, um, the call um, when it comes to social care, which is why the Tories are taking a drubbing, um, that make the rich pay, which how can you disagree with that slogan? Um, so both in terms of the socialist and socialist worker, almost identical headlines, make the rich pay. And of course, Keir Starmer, having initially hesitated on this and having been advised by a future challenger, no doubt, for the leadership when it becomes vacant, i.e., uh, Andy Burnham up there in the north. What's he do? He says the rich must pay. Now, he hasn't come out with the details of it. And let's be clear what the reality of that would be, that this is not going to be, if it was implemented, the billionaires uh, paying for it. It's not going to be um, the super rich. Uh, this is going to be what I would term uh, the middle class and the upper uh, middle class, and they would be paying uh, for it through their dividends, uh, through their salaries, but crucially uh, through their houses. That's that's actually what we're talking about here. So uh, the idea uh, that you're going to get, uh, you know, the billionaire class, I think, is um, illusory. The only way you're going to get the billionaire class uh, is to abolish tax havens, which, of course, we would do. Uh, but you could only do that, um, actually, uh, on the basis of the global revolution. Um, you know, as long as America uh, is in command and there is its loyal ally, Britain, there will be tax havens that they can squirrel their money away and um, keep it for a, a later uh, day. Um, OK, so in other words, what we have is Keir Starmer, at least on this question, um, posturing. Um, uh, to the left. And um, yeah, we see how then um, the polling uh, uh, does. Uh, that's all.